Well, hey, good morning. Uh, excited to be with you guys. I did not know that CIY was going to be uh, one of your partners uh, that was going to be highlighted. Uh, that's exciting for me because I work at CIY. I've uh, been there for 16 years and absolutely love it. Uh, Mario had mentioned, hey, man, just give us a really quick update. I had not planned on doing this, but I'll, I'll just tell you, uh, Jesus continues to be, I mean, he does immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. Uh, we are, you be pray, praying for us, we are growing so fast right now, it's, it's insane. Uh, last year, we had about 85,000 students in, uh, in events, uh, coast to coast. Uh, 45,000 of those were high school and junior high kids just during eight weeks of the summer. And so it is insane, but it's also a lot of fun. Uh, and also really excited, we just opened up our offices in Dublin, Ireland. We'll have our first event there in uh, summer of 2019. Just opened up an office in Calgary, Canada. We'll have an event in there in 2019. Uh, I'm leaving to go to Hyderabad, India to look at putting offices in there. And then we've got a team right now that's down in, in Florida meeting with some Latino leaders uh, about how we can address um, and even become more integrated in terms of how we build our events here domestically. So it's exciting, man. We're growing like crazy, and Jesus continues to do more than we could, we could imagine. So that's good. Uh, on a side note, I'm glad to be here. I was here two years ago, but I don't really remember it. Uh, not because you guys are not memorable, okay? Uh, it's because I was sicker than a dog. And so I remember being in that room before this service saying, oh, Jesus, help me get through one more. And, uh, and he did. And then I got my car and I was gone. I mean, just gone. Uh, I don't know, is anybody married to somebody that their ability to seek medical, he- medical help, they're just stubborn and they won't do it? Are you married to one like that? Okay. I'm that guy. Like, I was sick for like a month. It all started because of bow season. I'm a hunter, and I did not get help when I got really, really sick from being out in the cold. Kept taking antibiotics, and I kept thinking, oh, I can knock this, you know, another round. There's like three rounds of antibiotics. I was still sick. And when I left here, went home that night, and like, I was sick, man. Didn't go to work the next day. My wife's like, go call your doctor. like, no, I'll be all right. I'll be like, I got this. I'll make it. I'll be fine. I want antibiotics, you know. They cure everything. Nope. And uh, long story short, she went somewhere on that Monday night, the next night, and I was like watching Monday Night Football, couldn't even breathe, was in trouble. She came home, she's like, oh my word. Like, she ran up to my mom's house and got one of those little things that goes in your finger to check your oxygen levels. It was like 70-some percent, upper 70 percentiles. She took my temperature, it was like 104. She's like, we're going to the doctor. I was like, no, I'll be fine. I don't need anything. I'm okay. She's like, no, you're not. So she called two friends that were both, you know, they're both nurses, at uh, the local hospital, and they, she says, hey, his, his oxygen levels are like 77, 78%. He's running 104 fever. They're like, emergency room right now. Get him to the ER. Go now. I was like, well, since they said it, you know, okay, they're trained professionals, unlike my wife, who has wisdom. So I went in, and, uh, and the doctor's kind of like, uh, I don't care that you can't breathe. That's the least of my concerns. Like, we'll figure that out. He goes, uh, your blood is septic. You have sepsis in your blood system. Yeah, yeah, you know what that is. So, yeah, uh, I didn't know what that was. But evidently, I had got the infection of my lungs had gotten in my blood system, and it was shutting down my brain, my lungs, uh, and my, it was going to affect my brain, my heart, and my liver. And he's like, you're in trouble. I was like, so just like another round of antibiotics, and I can go home? And he's like, no, no, we're not talking when you go home. We're talking if. Like, this is bad. Like, you don't, you don't, this is like, we hope we can turn the corner. So my apologies for the last sermon I preached here. Hopefully we can make it up today. It was, uh, it was on me, so I did not realize, or I'm just stubborn. Yeah, anyway. Uh, but I'll tell you this, I'm excited about having this conversation today because at a heart level, man, I absolutely love, love, love the church. Uh, the church was there for me in my life uh, and, and rescued me in a moment 
that I can just never forget. And so the opportunity to, to be with the church on Sunday morning and have a conversation about how beautiful the church is, man, that, that is just, that's a good day for me. Uh, at CIY, we, within our own team, you know, we kind of have the attitude of John the Baptist. We want to decrease so that Jesus and the church can increase. And I tell our team all the time, we are bridesmaids, never the bride. And so we wake up every morning at CIY saying, how can we serve the church? And I think part of that comes from my own personal heartbeat. I love the church, man. I do. Uh, and I'll tell you more about why I love it so much. Uh, but I want to just kind of have an ongoing conversation. I've seen the church when she has just been just absolutely beautiful. One of those times, some of you guys remember, you know, if you've, been a, if you've lived in this area a while, you remember we had a massive, huge tornado that swept through Joplin. And it was bad, really, really bad. We could tell different stories about that tornado. Uh, but I got one, you know, four of our staff lost their, their homes. And after we kind of got them settled in, um, we all begin saying, okay, we've, we've kind of taken care of our staff. Now, how do we start helping the rest of this community? And I got a weird job. I don't know how exactly I got into this, but I was uh, assigned to a grid to go look for cadavers. I'm trying to figure out a polite way to say that since we do have not a lot of younger kids, but only, only respectful. I was doing cadaver searches is what I was doing. And uh, just wasn't something I ever thought I'd be doing. But we, we'd go search these grids and if we could, we could find anyone. And... Uh, yeah, I remember at one point we were kind of finished this grid. We all went back to our meeting, our rendezvous point, and uh, you know, as we're sitting there, we're waiting for the next, you know, for them to give us the next grid to go search. And uh, and they were using law enforcement and you know, pastors and counselors and you know, any medical people that weren't helping the hospital. They're just getting people who could do that do that type of thing and, and be able to process and handle it. And so yeah, they, I said okay, I'll volunteer to do that. And so. As we're sitting around, uh, if you remember that tornado, a few days after it came through, just we kept getting storm after storm kept developing in Joplin. I mean, just storm. And it got cold and nasty and dreary. And some of you guys may have been there helping out. You might remember that. It was just, we kept thinking, man, we're going to get hit again and again. And, and I remember one afternoon after doing the first grid search, I'm sitting there and it's cold. And I remember having my rain jacket on and I'm just shivering, man. You know, it's just kind of cold and dreary and rainy. And, and there's probably 60 of us sitting around waiting for our next assignment. And we go out in teams of like, I think it was like 8 to 10. We go, do, go search a whole grid, search a neighborhood. And as we're sitting there, you know, 60 of us all kind of come back at the same time. We're eating these little cold-cut sandwiches. There's this guy over here leaning up against like this vehicle. And he looks like, if you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, he looks like Gimli, okay? He stands about that tall, got a big old thick beard. You know, he's built like a bowling ball. He was a retired fireman from Kansas City. I know that because his voice was so loud. Everybody knew about this guy's life. He was just a, I like, loud. He's the kind of person that, like, if you needed to breach a door, you just threw him, okay? He's just like, boom, doors open. You're just big old thick guy. But his language, like, I could use the word colorful. The guy just cussed incessantly, like, he's just cussed nonstop. And I'm just sitting there putting up with him, you know. He's so loud. Everybody else is trying to have conversations, but his voice just covers the whole area. Then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm watching the storm roll in, and I'm eating my sandwich, and all of a sudden, I, I kind of set up because he starts talking about the church, but he uses words in front of the word church that we typically would not use, like, yeah, especially like a lightning storm where you're going to get struck with a bolt from God, you know? It's one of those things like, bro, you can't use that phrase in front of church. Like, that's wrong. And all of a sudden, all 60 people just kind of go, whoop, he's going to die any moment now. And he goes, but he just keeps saying foul words. Like, he's like, I'm telling you, man, if it wasn't for the, and he said some bad words, church, I don't know what this town would do. And I was like, Okay, anytime now, lightning bolt, dead. You know, it's like, I'm telling you, man, and he did it again. The something church is getting it done here. And I'm like, 
wow, okay, I cannot believe that. And he just kept going on and on. And that moment, man, the Holy Spirit did something in those 60 people. And I saw beyond his words what his heart was saying, man. That the church became a point of rescue for that city. I remember when FEMA came in and some of the, and I'm not trying to pick on, on, on any government entities, but at first they started telling the church, hey, we're here, we've got this now. And they kind of ran off some of the churches that were having a huge impact. And uh, they're like, okay, all right. And then it was about two days later, they called a meeting of all the pastors like, hey, come on, come back real quick. We actually need you all right now. Get back to work. Because the church was feeding people. The church was housing people. The church was there. They were cutting the trees down, all of that. I mean, I saw the church in this beautiful, tender, gorgeous moment that we, when we allow our hands to be a place of rescue for a broken community, great things happen. It's not always that way, though. See, sometimes in my life, I think my Christian life, it can become about what I don't do. And all the things that I, I try to avoid, that it really is about the good that I do. Like, sometimes in a Christian life, we can work so hard on behavior modification that, man, if I don't think this, if I don't say this, if I don't look at that, if I don't go there, if I don't do this, then we have a whole list of, of like these behaviors we've got to modify. And if we can just control ourselves to not do these bad things, then Jesus will like us and Jesus will love us. And it's not the case, man. That's not how this is meant to work. And I think what Satan does is he gets us so distracted on modifying our behavior and trying to make sure that we stay perfect, making sure that we don't do anything wrong. And the voice of condemnation is always haunting you. It's always haunting me. It's telling you, oh, you know you said that. You know you looked at that. You know you thought that. You know you did this. And you get the long list of all the things, all the accusations of the things you've done. So you work and you work and I work and I work at trying not to do the wrong thing when all the while he laughs. Because we've missed our real purpose, which is doing the right thing. <laughs> it feels like this. It's when I'm, I'm prompted to talk to somebody. Oh, man, I, I, I don't want to interrupt. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what I'd say. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. And I might be, I might be intruding. Like, I, who am I? What, what place is it of mine? The truth of the matter is it's, it's got a lot less to do with my my desire to not interrupt, and it has to do with my own personal sense of discomfort. I mean, I hear about a need, but I don't respond. Or surely somebody else has it, says everybody. Surely I'd be an intrusive. And so the deafening silence on the phone of that person that's broken, that person that's hurting, the deafening silence as they look at their phone and it doesn't ring and no text comes, the deafening silence in their life as we all sit over here and we talk about the fact that we don't know what to say. We have conversations like, I don't know, what do you say? I don't know, I don't know what to say, you know? We have all these conversations about not knowing what to say. We talk about our silence, the irony of that. My wife, when she was diagnosed with cancer, and she's going to be just fine. Please, please hear this. She's going to be just fine. Um, when she was first diagnosed with cancer several years ago, it, it was a mess, man. I just, I didn't know how to handle this. I mean, I'm a dad with three kids at that time. Now we've got four, but still, it's like, poof. I walk in. My wife's just out of surgery. The surgeon calls me in, sits me down. He goes, he, he goes listen, man, I'm just going to shoot straight here. Uh, we just wrapped up the surgery with your wife. The surgery went very, very well. We did find a, uh, you know, a mass inside of there, and uh, I'm 99.9% .9 sure that it's cancer, just want to let you know that with that type of cancer, 
uh, one of two things is going to happen. Either it is one of the easiest types on the planet to treat, she'll have no problems at all, or she'll be dead in six months. Okay? All right. Pooh, whoa. Like, you're a, good, you're a good surgeon. You're a bad doctor. Okay? <laughs> like, you're not going to work on this bedside manner thing. But I remember trying to take a knee. I remember. My wife hadn't, hadn't come out of a little surgical area, waiting on her to kind of come up out of, out of anesthesia. And I remember boys came into the room to see me, and I asked their grandparents if I could have just a minute with them. And I remember taking a knee and just telling them, hey, guys, here, here's what's going on. And I took my wife home, and she was on radiation stuff, and so we had to stay away from her for a while. She was quarantined. We couldn't get near her, and I realized, man, I'm just doing this for a little while, man, a week or two. I don't know how long it was. It felt like months because all of a sudden I became a single parent, and my mom has huge respect for raising three boys on her own. And I'm, I'm trying to figure this thing out now as a dad with, you know, at that point, three kids. One of them just a, just a toddler, and I'm trying to work. I'm trying to take care of my kids. My wife's over here in radiation, and man, the silence. I got two great friends. I, I kept, kept thinking any moment, man, the phone's going to ring. Any moment, I'm going to hear that knock on the door. Any moment. Day goes by, didn't hear from him. A couple days go by, nothing. Week goes by, nothing. Month goes by, year goes by, two years go by. And I realized, man, that bitterness was taking over my heart because of that moment. And I finally took him out for breakfast individually. I said, bro, where were you? Where were you, man? I said, I'm angry at you. Where were you? I'm going through the hardest time of my life and you don't make a phone call? You don't show up at my door? Where were you? Man, we, did, we didn't want to intrude. We knew you had a lot going on. We're afraid that if we just showed up, that it'd be too much for you. You know, we're, we're afraid, you know, we'd kind of get in the way. We knew that, you, you know, you had a lot happening. On and on it goes. And it's easy for me to throw stones at them, but the truth is I am no different. I justify my inactivity. I think we're being played, church. I think we're being played. I think our enemy right over here has got us so preoccupied with maintaining proper behavior, making sure that we don't sin, making sure we don't do something bad, that we've actually missed our calling, which is to do good. From the very beginning, it's interesting, when you watch and God forms man in the garden, I used to have this whacked out theology. I don't know where it came from. Probably some preacher on a stage somewhere said something and he was wrong and I believed it. But at some point, somebody had me convinced that this whole concept of work was because man sinned. Like, anybody else ever been fed that line? Like, I used to think that, well, we sinned and now we got to go to work. No, that is so doctrinally wrong. That is so theologically whacked. That's not even true. Work is not the result of sin. In fact, if you go back, reread Genesis from the very beginning, one of the first things when God makes man, he makes him to do he makes him to work. It's why you have phalanges. It's why you have muscles. It's why you have a skeleton. It's so that you can leverage this body for good. Work, work is not punishment. Work is from God. It's a gift. And unfortunately, I think we get lulled over here into this internal mindset of behavior modification, of self-denial of don't say this, don't do that, and we, we act like that's the goal. It's like if you had a car, can you imagine if you had a car and the goal of that car was to not wreck? So we walked outside every day and you showed me your car and I'm like, he goes, look, I didn't wreck it today. 
bro, you didn't drive it today, okay? That's not the purpose of a car. It's so it can sit in your driveway and not get wrecked. Your praise is meant to take you someplace. It's meant to go. It's meant to do. In the same way, the purpose of your life is not just like, just don't make a mistake. Just hold on. Don't screw it up. No, 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 no. Inaction is not in your DNA. It's not the way you were wired. It's not the way you were built. And you have an enemy so convincing you that the goal is to not do bad, that you are so focused on that, that we fail to do good. As if obedience to God is only played out in denying sin. We get outmaneuvered, we get outflanked. I think we have a higher purpose. So much talk in what we shouldn't do is distract us from doing what we should. James talks about this. Before that, Paul mentions it in Romans chapter 7. He says, man, I know, I know the bad things I don't want to do, and I do them anyway. If you ever read Romans 7, it's full of these do's and do's and do's, okay? All the bad things I don't want to do. We all feel that. You ever have that thing? You're like, man, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to say that again. I'm never going to look at that again. I'm never going to think that again. I'm never going to go there again. I'm never going to... We got a whole list of nevers. How many of you guys, rhetorical question, you know you've made that promise to God, God, I promise I'll never do this again, and you did it again, okay? Like as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool to his folly. We know that, man. We go back to doing the same old stuff, and then we live in this world of condemnation. Paul also says, but man, it's the good things that I want to do, those things I don't do. Well, James puts it this way. We think this is the issue over here, behavior modification, but James says this in 4.17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do, if anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it to him, it is sin. The good they ought to do, the phone call they ought to make, the person they ought to visit, the money they ought to invest in a person or a family, whatever it is, when you know the good you ought to do and you don't do it, to him it is sin. Our objective is not just to resist sin, but to do good. I think there's a sweet collision that happens in the church when we become both rescuer of soul and rescuer of man. Sometimes I think that we've got this idea that if we can just get people dunked, that we're done. If we can just go this process, that once you're baptized, you're golden, everything's good, as if we've just got to endure this life until we can get to heaven. No, 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 no. That's, that's a warped theology again. Our goal is not just to endure this time on earth so eventually we can go to heaven. No, we're here for a reason. That when we are redeemed, the world around us should feel that redemption. They should experience that redemption. That because you've been saved, you save others. And I'm not talking just in the spiritual sense, but in the physical sense as well. That rescue comes to a nation. Rescue comes to a community. Rescue comes to a church. Rescue comes to a neighbor. Rescue comes to a house. Because you've been saved. And not just for someday. Jesus says salvation is not just someday. He says salvation is here. And it's not just for your personal soul, man. It's for the world around you. You see this plays out. I mean, it's, it's who we're meant to be. And I'm not saying necessarily new life. I'm talking about the church in general. I think we've lost a little bit of our family tree. We've lost a little bit of our genetics about where we come from. Do you know where we come from? We come from places like Rome. And back in Rome, in AD 180, 165, between 165 and 180, there's a massive epidemic of smallpox that, that break out in the Roman Empire. If you ever watched the movie Gladiator, I know it's getting old now, but back in the day when they had the movie Gladiator, some of you guys remember watching that, that's what Marcus Aurelius dies of. It's that time frame. But in that moment in the movie Gladiator, it happens again, honestly, when you get to 8251, this time it's measles. The first one with smallpox, they were losing 2,000 people a day were dying. 2,000 every day. Bam, one after another. Just dead. 
You go to the smallpox, uh, excuse me, the measles hitting 251, it went all the way from Ethiopia all the way to Scotland, and the Roman Empire was decimated. Just people dying. They had so many dead, they didn't even know what to do, and they were burning the bodies, there were so many. And what would happen in these cities, like Rome, is that when the, when the disease broke out, all the pagans would flee, man. They, were, they would head for the hills, get as far away from the disease as you can possibly get, but not the Christians. The Christians stayed. The Christians didn't bail. The Christians didn't run. They stayed right there. And in fact, Diocles writes this. He says, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were inflicted by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerily accepting their pains. Many, in nursing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner so that death in this form seems in every way equal of that of martyrdom. The church stayed. In fact, you knew that if you got into a very difficult situation in Rome and your family was plagued with a disease, the only thing you could count on, the only thing that would be there for you was the church. They go through and they, they've tracked the survival rates. There's been some books written on this and the fact that pagans had a survival rate of about 20%, but the church all of a sudden, their survival rate bumps up to about 35% and higher. Like, wow, God must have been rescuing these people. He did through the church. Because sometimes some of you guys that live in the medical community know that the most basic nursing can save lives. The most basic nursing offered. And that's what the church did, is that when they heard that somebody in their congregation was sick, they said, hey, we heard that so-and-so's got measles, so-and-so's got smallpox. One of the elders, or one of the members, or somebody in the church says, I've got that one, I'll take care of it. And they'd knock on that door and creak o- creep open, and they'd walk in. And I think when they read Matthew, the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, verse 37, and he says, I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was a stranger, and you invited me in because the pagans, they left their grandparents behind. They left their aunts and uncles behind, and they bailed and went for the hills to to save their own hides, but the Christians stayed. And when they walked in, all of a sudden, they'd be checking on this one person, and then all of a sudden, they would hear somebody moaning in the house next door, and they'd literally walk over, and this pagan quickly realized that the only person that would care for them was a believer because that's what we come from. That's who we are. We've never been a people of inactivity We've always been a people of action. And I guarantee you, what they say happened is revival broke out in cities like Rome. In fact, we look at Constantine and others and how they bring this religion, you know, this revolution that happens. You don't know why? Because they write in their own journals. The pagan priests write, we don't know what to do about these Christians. Not only do they look after their own people, but they also look after ours as well. If we can only love like they love. The church is meant to be an activator of salvation, not just spiritually, but physically as well. And salvation meant that you had not only help from above, but help next door. So our text we're going to live in, I'm going to move quickly from 1 John chapter 3. If you get your Bibles, turn there. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. We're going to live in this text the rest of our time together. Here's what it says. And this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions but sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, 
How can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. That phrase that Jesus laid down his life, like sometimes as Christians, we so quickly want to go to the cross. And we want to picture Jesus in that moment, stretched out on a cross. And while I do believe John is speaking of that, I think John also sees a whole of Jesus' life and perspective here. Jesus laid down his life long before he was ever placed on a cross. Don't rush there too fast. He laid down his very nature to be made nothing, giving up the throne of heaven to become like us. He laid down his privilege and took on poverty, willing to give up this crown of heaven for a crown of thorns. He laid down his own safety on that night in the book of Mark when this raging demoniac, naked I'll say, comes charging in like two or three in the morning, screaming and yelling, demon possessed. I'd have throat punched that guy and told everybody back on the boat. Not Jesus. Meets him. Risk his own safety. He laid down his own health, willing to touch people that nobody else would touch. He had his reputation, willing to associate with those people. He wasn't afraid to talk to prostitutes and broken people, sinners. And he laid down his own mentality for, for a cross. I think we ought to risk it as well. In fact, the word that John says when he says we ought to risk our lives, the phrasing that means daily, not like we did it once 10 years ago. We should risk our lives daily. Our love for God is shown in our obedience, make no doubt. Our love for God is shown in our obedience, okay? That's how you show you love God is in your obedience. But our love for others is shown in our sacrifice. What does your sacrifice look like for others? Jesus says this, greater love is no one than this, First John chapter 15, than they would lay down their life for one's friends. So we need to risk it. But the phrase is, John says, lay down your life for your brother. What, who's your brother? Right now, I'm sure some of you guys are answering that question in your head. I say, who's your brother? And you're saying, well, everybody's my brother. Because you quickly want to jump to the stories of like the Good Samaritan. Everybody's my brother. The whole world's my brother. Everybody come in contact with is your brother. That is at some level true, but not in this text. This text is not that. This text is specific. This text is talking about a very specific group. Yes, hear me out. At some level, you can look at stories like the Good Samaritan, when Jesus is going to all, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the world, when he talks about doing it for the least of these, all of those are true, but this text is different. This text is pointing out and highlighting something that I think sometimes, as the church generally, we don't talk about enough. This one's talking about specifically fellow believers. In other words, for you, application, the people you're in the room with right now. That's exactly. The Greek word that he uses here will be talking about the local church, the people in this immediate community that you go to church with. It's a very unique word that John uses here. It's different. He's trying to draw something out. You're like, whoa, whoa, wait, you're saying that we should care, like, specifically for the people who go to church with? What, what about all the other people out there? Well, yeah, definitely. I'm not saying no, but I would say that fellow Christians are supposed to be considered a priority. All right. Some of you are like, I've never heard that before. You have. You just forgot. Because Paul mentions it in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Fair enough? There it is. Let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. See, here's the deal. It's not about us forming some sort of inward click. But if we can't take care of this here, why should anybody believe any of this? The fact that Christians took such good care of one another was a testimony to everyone on the outside. And it wasn't a matter of, hey, we circle the wagons and we take care of our own. No, 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 that's not the mentality. 
The mentality is, look at us. Look at the way we care for one another. When you join this community, we'll have your back as well. And pagans came in droves. And in fact, check out what it says if you look at at Acts chapter 2, verse 44 to 47. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with gladness and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And check out this next phrase. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Why? Because you knew that when you joined this community, someone had your back. You knew when you joined this group, the people would be for there, there for you in your darkest hour. That when you were a widow or you were an orphan or you were, you know, a single mom trying to take care of your kids, you knew when you needed employment, when you needed help, this is the group who had your back. And I think there's a place for us to be reminded of that. For a Christian to be unkind to another Christian is absolutely monstrous. You will spend eternity with the people in this room. They should be a key priority for you. And again, it isn't about establishing a clique that's us versus them. No, it's about establishing a trustworthy community that when people from the outside look, they know it's real. And if it can't be real here, why would anyone ever want to join it? Then he goes from brothers to brother, and I think this is interesting. He starts off plural, then he goes singular in the text. He makes this phrase. He says, uh, we lay down our life for our brothers, plural. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother... In need. I want to talk about that a little bit because sometimes we can get so like overwhelmed because this is a church of 800 people and you're only one person. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to take care of the need that's in front of you. Take care of the one. A lot of times I work with students and they get so overwhelmed by all the world problems that you can be so concerned with helping everybody that you never actually help anybody. You can try so hard to love everybody that you actually are loving nobody. I do believe we need to think about things like social justice. We need to think about the needs within our global world. I'm not saying to not do those things, but I am saying if we can't do this, how can we do that? This is where our witness begins. It's like saying you love everyone, but you can't love the people in your own home. How how can you be believable that moment? And the same thing for the church. How can we love the whole world if we don't love one another? And again, I'm not calling for an inward mentality where this is all we do, but I'm saying it's got to start here. This has to be where the ripple comes from. Transform my life. Changed who I am at a deep, deep level. I think this is what it connects so much with me at a heart level. Jesus makes a statement, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know my disciples if you attend church every week. By this, everyone will know your disciples if you, if you have proper behavior. No. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. And how do we love? We sacrifice. That's what love looks like. Not telling people you love them, not telling them you care about them, not telling them you like them. Does it, come, does it show up when you just hug? It shows up when you show up. When you're there in the darkest hour, when you hear about the need and you physically respond, and for some of us in this room, the best thing we could do is sell a little and give a lot, to become reckless in the way that we love. 
to look at it and say, man, I was built for more than behavior modification. I was built to love. And love is not an emotion. Love is an action. And how do I put my faith into action? I can tell you why this matters to me so much and why I'm so intense on it. Because, man, I didn't have smallpox or measles, and I didn't live in Rome. But I lived in a little dumpy little town in southwest Missouri. And I didn't grow up with a dad. My mom, great lady, just could not pick a husband to save her life. Good woman, man. Bad at picking men. But all of a sudden, man, I just remember as a kid, like, this guy, another guy moved in with us, and he eventually became my stepdad. And my relationship with him was he, he built houses for a living. By the time he got, he got, went to work at like 5 a.m. every day, putting tools in the truck. And by the time he came home, my relationship with him was, here's two Budweiser. Can you catch them both at the same time? And he'd sit in the chair and rest. He wasn't abusive. He was just tired. Just pouring concrete all day, framing houses. He's tired. But he didn't have time for me. And I had this kid named Curtis invited me over to spend the night. Very quickly, I think that family realized that I didn't know what to do when they all sat around a table and they held hands. I'm like, how are we going to eat? Like, this doesn't make sense. Like, put our faces down. Like, then they, they did this out. They said, we're going to pray. I was like, I don't know what prayer is. And then after that, the dad went outside, and we played wiffle ball, and we had chocolate chip cookies, and I thought it was pretty awesome. And they asked me if I wanted to spend the night again. I'm like, yeah, because at my house, usually, I mean, my dad would buy a keg for all the high school kids, and they'd go down to the river, and he'd padlock the gate so they couldn't leave in their cars. And then I remember as a kid, I was, I was tending bar for the adults that drank up at the house. I mean, that's just how life was for me. It's just different here. I, I didn't know what a church was. But they asked me if I wanted to go to church with them the next day. I'm like, I don't know what that is, but sure. And they said, okay, we're going to go to Sunday school. And I was like, well, this stinks. <laughs> I was like, it's Sunday. Who wants to go to school? And it was like, Burr. So I went. We made some really lame crafts. And, and then we had name brand animal cookies. That was cool. But that, that Kool-Aid they made was weak sauce. It was bad, man. Like, add some sugar. Put full packets in. Come on, man. This is bad Kool-Aid. Like, but they loved me. And then I remember we went into this, this room a lot like this, and they had these wooden benches you sat on. And I sat down until my backside hurt, and his dad just kept talking, kind of like me. You ready for lunch? Watch football. Guy kept talking. But they loved me. I couldn't get enough of it, man. I mean, I didn't have measles. I didn't have smallpox like Rome. What I did have was a wound in my heart. And they introduced me to a community that loved me. My dad saw me. I, I was at Curtis's house. He didn't tell me I could be there. His daddy would preach little revivals. I'd ride in the back camper shell of the truck just to be around this community called church because it fed my soul. My dad didn't like that brand of church. It's a good church. He just didn't like it. So he's like, we're, we're going to go to our own church. I'm like, okay, church. Church is cool. I don't know who Jesus is, but I sure like these church people. I had no clue who Jesus was. All of a sudden, my dad woke us up one morning, probably had a party the night before with kegs and everything else, and I'd probably been serving bar. My dad wakes us all up, hey, we're going to church. Like, probably hung over, but okay, here we go. So we all got dressed, and we pulled in the parking lot, and we're not dressed for this. So we backed out of the parking lot and went home. <laughs> Next week, he woke us all up. We're going to church. We're going to do it. So we all showed up. We're all arguing and yelling. We pulled up. We're a little bit late. He goes, we're late. I don't want to go in. So we backed out of the parking lot, drove back home. <laughs> Third week, we pull up in the parking lot, pulls in, parks in a spot, he got his hand. I think he even turned off the car, and he's like, I don't want to do this. Starts the car back up, and we left. For three weeks, my family pulled up in the church parking lot and bailed, left. Fourth week, we went in. And man, that community, they just loved us. They invited us in like friends. 
invite us to have like homemade ice cream. And every kid loves homemade ice cream. And the kids, we all played and they, they treated me with respect. And they treated my parents with respect. <laughs> the first Sunday, the guy's like, uh, you know, what, what's your name? Uh, he's like, my, name, my name's Dan. I'm like, oh, Dan, where do you go to church? He should have said, you know, First Church of Budweiser is what he should have said. But he's like, oh, I go to Fairview. It's like, no, you don't. Not since you're like, you know, 12. <laughs> he's like, like, well, maybe, maybe you should close out our time in prayer. And I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> like, uh, all right. But they loved us. I, it was a week or two after that, man. I'll never forget this. I was at home, and this is back in the days when they didn't have trash. People came pick up your trash. Back in the old days, you lived out in the country, you just burned it. And so uh, I, I would go out, and I was burning the trash in this 55-gallon drum we had. It's just what we did with it. And my mom had this aerosol can she put in there, and it blew up, and it popped out on the ground, and it caught the leaves on fire. And those leaves, those leaves burned out. I was in the house doing something. I heard her screaming and yelling. And I took off running outside, and I realized it's, the leaves had burned down underneath my brother's 55 Chevy two-door hardtop, caught the tires on fire, full tank of gas, and blew his car up as I hold the garden hose, and then, man, the flames are just spreading out everywhere, and it's going towards my dad's tool shed where he keeps all his construction tools that he's not using on the job that day, and, and then I realized, man, this could catch our house on fire, and I ran, I'm screaming at my mom, like, we need help, we got to get this out. I said, call Dan, we need help, we need help, and this is back before cell phones and pagers, man, so we didn't have any of that. We were poor, so finally, she does the only thing she can do. She remember she met this lady named Vicky at church, and he, she knew that she lived just up the road, just up the road from where my dad was building the house. And she called and found Vicky's number, called up. Hey, Vicky, my name is Charlotte. Oh, Charlotte, yeah, I remember. We met at church. We had ice cream together. Yeah, yeah. She's like, well, Vicky, we're in trouble right now. I said, um, our property's on fire, and we're afraid it's going to burn down the house, and it's going it's to catch all of Dan's tools on fire. Can you please drive down the road? Dan's just working. He's just building a house just down the road for me. She's like, oh, you bet, honey. I'll, I'll, I'll go down there right now. She hung up the phone, and before she went, she made one more phone call. Made one more phone call. And she jumped in her car, and she raced down, and she said, Dan, uh, your wife needs you right now. Your, your, your woods are on fire. It's going to burn down the house. He's like, okay. And so he tells all the guys on his crew that he's leading, hey, guys, we're going to wrap up. And they'd heard. Guys, we're going to wrap up. We're done working for today. Going to pack everything up. And they're like, okay, we're off work. And they all just left. And he's packing up the tools because we're poor, man. <laughs> Can't just leave his tools sitting out there and let him get stolen. He's, he has no livelihood anymore. So he's got to pack up the tools and throw them in the truck. And finally gets them all thrown in this Dodge, just hodge, just throwing them in, drives home. And as he drives home, it's not even that long of a distance. He comes bearing up our gravel road, bearing up our gravel driveway, just flying in. And he's, all of a sudden, there's cars all over his driveway. He's weaving around cars. He's driving through the yard. He's like, what in the world is going on? And all of a sudden, he comes around like where the house was. My mom's standing there, and she's just starting to thing eliminate. And the fire, fire is out. Because that one phone call that Vicky made to the church, and on that day, on that day, you were there, and 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 you were there, because you're the church. And on that day, you showed up in my family's darkest hour. On that day, you didn't just post it on Facebook, oh, sad news, McGrew's property's on fire. No, you didn't just post it. You didn't just send a tweet. You didn't send a text message that says, hey, you know, praying for you. No, 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 no. You, you left what you had. You left your jobs. You left your tasks. You left the things that were important. And on that day, you got in your vehicles, and you showed up at my house. You showed up on my property, and you put my fire out. My dad, to this day, says on that day, he knew that none of his pagan friends would have showed up like that. 
That day, the church showed up with rakes, and they put out my family's fire. And today, well, actually, shortly after that, my dad took every bottle of alcohol out of it, and he put in this old orange wheelbarrow, and he took me out, and I watched him break every single bottle. Never took another drink. Never took another drink. My dad's actually an elder in that church today. Isn't that crazy? Because we do our best when we show up. Listen, I'm going to call you right now to a time of prayer. Because some of you in this room, you've been way too obsessed with behavior modification. You've been way too obsessed with thinking, if you can just not, you know, smoke, cuss, drink, or chew, or date girls that do, that life's okay. If you can somehow control your behavior today, you're going to be all right. And I'm telling you, man, the enemy, he's messing with you. He's got you so focused on avoiding condemnation that you're actually forgetting what your purpose is, and that is to respond to the needs of others here first and also abroad. So I'm going to call two things to pray. Taylor and Mario are going to be up here. Can we just have a moment of boldness and maybe we just kind of drop this air of I don't I, We always play this game that we want to think, everybody, think that we got it all together. People say they're fine, scare me. Okay? I don't trust people that say they're fine. Okay? No one's fine. We're either in crisis or it's coming. That's how this life works. Okay? In 50 years, I've learned that. Either it's going to be, it's a difficult day or one's coming my way. Like, we're not all fine. We're not all perfect. We got issues. But in this room, we got two groups of people. Probably one group that says, I could use some help right now. I, I really could. I'm going through this. I'm a single mom, or I've lost my job, or I'm going through this. I could use a little help right now. Let's come up and just let this church respond to that. Or number two, there's another group of you that you're sitting here, and you know that you have the ability to respond. You know you could do something about it, that God's gifted you with either the time to do something, the talent to do something, or you've got the money or the treasure to do something. And you're looking at it going, man, I need to pour this back into the kingdom. I need to build his kingdom and not my own. And maybe your best thing is to walk up to Taylor Mario and go, here's what I got. How can you use it? How can you put what I've got to work so that his kingdom be glorified and so the Lord will add to this number daily those who are being saved? They will know you are his disciples, not by how you talk, not even just by your behavior modification for crying out loud. Do you know how they're going to know you are his disciples? By how you love. And not how you love with words and tongue and talk. They're going to know you as disciples by how you love with your actions.